What's up, everyone, and welcome to the was this the twelfth episode of the Joshua Perry Show? Of course, I am your host, former Buckeye captain and national champion, former NFL player, and current Big Ten Network and ninety-seven point one the fan analyst Joshua Perry. This is a podcast where we talk sports, life, and everything else. We are broadcasting on the Zedia Network. Follow at Zedia Network on Twitter for big time podcasts, fantastic content. This show is sponsored by Todd Pennington with Columbus-based Revolution Mortgage. If you are looking to refinance into a very competitive low rate or cash out for debt consolidation or home improvements, now is the time with historically low rates and Todd can help you out. Todd should also be your go-to guy if you're looking to purchase a new home or get out of renting. So contact Todd Pennington at 614-390-9520 or visit revolutionmortgage.com slash tpennington for more info. Revolution Mortgage is an equal housing lender and NMLS ID 1686046. All right, people, I got you a little show lined up and it's pretty daggone good. We're going to start off with some Big Ten chatter. We're going to talk about the weekend in review. I've got a little talk about Michigan losing to Michigan State, which warms my heart anytime the Wolverines are losers. Um, Ohio State beat Penn State in a pretty convincing fashion. I'll talk a little bit about that game and my expectations for OSU and Penn State as we move forward here. Um, we'll talk about the Big Ten East. Is Indiana for real in the East? Is it someone else that I think is going to be the runner-up behind Ohio State coming out of that side of the division? We'll talk about the West as well because it's a little funky over there. And then uh, I'll look big picture to a national matchup this weekend. We got Clemson facing off with Notre Dame, and I'll just give you some thoughts on that. Once we finish up with the football chatter, we're going to talk a little politics. Yeah, we had a little election earlier this week, and uh, it's got people feeling kind of twisted a little bit tight. Um, and, and I'm not necessarily going to talk too much on the political side. I'm going to get into it a little bit. But it's going to be really a civics lesson for everybody and, uh, you know, just kind of getting our minds right and, and hopefully letting us take a deep breath and, and process everything that's going on. Uh, hopefully by the time the show is out, we will have processed, but just for future reference, I want everybody to have this. And then finally we'll finish out with my word and that word is mentorship. Um, and I've got a, a nice little story about that. So let's dive right into it. Uh, we had some awesome big 10 play this weekend. It was a fun weekend to cover for me over there in Chicago. Um, starting it off, the Wolverines took it right on the chin to old Mel Tucker and Sparty. Jim Harbaugh losing in his first rivalry matchup of the season to a first-year head coach at Michigan State um, in a game where they were heavily favored. People did not think very highly of Michigan State coming into the matchup because they had lost to Rutgers the week before. Uh, Michigan had a pretty convincing win against a Minnesota team that we have now all learned is ass. And uh, it's really interesting because I was kind of prepping for this game and I was getting my thoughts together. And I had backed off on how good I thought Michigan was just based off of what we saw from Minnesota on Friday night. Uh, Minnesota played Maryland and they got into a really sloppy game. It was something that was winnable. They went into OT. They missed an extra point starting off the year 0-2. Their defense cannot stop a soul. And so I was looking back at Michigan's matchup with them from week one, and I'm like, okay, is Joe Milton really what we think they are? Is their run game that good? Because Maryland's running back, Jake Funk, had 221 yards on Minnesota. So I'm like, okay, so if he can go for 221, and Michigan didn't have a guy that went for 221, like how good could they really be? 
And I'm sitting there like, okay, now Michigan State, like they were bad. Seven turnovers to Rutgers is not good. But their offense went for like 400 and some odd yards. And I think after week one, they were the leaders in passing yards in the Big Ten. And I'm like, all right, is this game going to be, is it going to be something that we're not expecting out of either one of these teams where Michigan is probably worse than we think and Michigan State might be a little bit better than we think. And that's pretty much what we got. And it really boils down to this. Michigan looked bad on offense and defense, and they were outcoached. And I'll explain. So Michigan offensively, uh, Joe Milton threw for 300 yards, but he struggled. He did not throw a touchdown in the game. His average, uh, I think per attempt, I'm not sure if his per attempt or per completion was 5.8 yards, which is just, it's not good. He ended up throwing the ball 52 times too, which tells you about the situation they were in offensively. It tells you two things is number one, they're playing from behind because you got to throw the ball when you're behind, uh, try to preserve the clock and, and, and gobble up yards. Um, and, and number two, they could not run the football with success. And Joe Milton's issue was pressure. Michigan State crowded the line of scrimmage and put Joe Milton in situations where he had to be decisive. Routes were not able to develop. Um, Joe Milton was not able to go through a read progression with any type of consistency or success. And he ended up getting thrown off the spot a lot of times. Um, he ended up uh, just looking uncomfortable, confused, disheveled, whatever you want to say. And uh, Michigan State really took advantage of that. And it was, it was kind of wild, too, just to look at it. I mean, they had their safeties lined up on some downs, like six yards from the line of scrimmage. I mean, they had nobody deep off the ball. And it was literally them putting their trust in their front seven and saying that we're going to confuse a young quarterback who doesn't have a ton of experience yet, and we're going to suffocate and take the air out of this offense. And then you look at how Michigan ran the ball, 152 yards rushing. Um, it was not a good day for them. Their running back room really could not get started, and they could not run into the middle of Michigan State's defense. And I think that was another situation where Michigan State said, you've got four new starters on the offensive line if you're Michigan. I don't think you can block our guys if we're aggressive and we blitz you and we crowd the line of scrimmage, and it turned out to be true. And so when you have a, 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 a new quarterback in the game, the offense cannot run the football. You are in a situation that is not good. And that's what it looked like. So we've got that out the way. The offense did not do very well. They got zero favors from their defense. They got zero favors from their defense. So we heard all offseason Don Brown and, and Michigan players talking about our defense is going to be really good and we pride ourselves on our defense and Don Brown is a guru coordinator and he likes to be aggressive and we're going to blitz and we're going to play man-to-man -man and that's our culture and that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to get stops. Our defensive backs are really, really fast and this, that, and the third. And then they come into this game and Michigan State has a freshman wide receiver go off for like 200 yards receiving. And I got to find you this young man's name. Uh, because I, I definitely don't want to be disrespectful to him because he had a fantastic game. But, um, you know, we're coming off the Rocky Lombardi, you know, turned the ball over a ton of times. Michigan State's offense just didn't look good. And like I said, they accumulated yards, but they couldn't convert opportunities, and they just kept giving the ball away. To all of a sudden, you've got Michigan State now on the edges of 
their offense beating Michigan's defense. Their wide receivers were running away from Michigan's defensive backs. Think about that. Michigan State hadn't recruited well over the last couple of years. Ricky White is his name, freshman wide receiver Ricky White. So I guess he's one of the, the better recruits that they had. Because when you look at recruiting for the past few years from Michigan State, it just wasn't that good. They were, you know, kind of, you know, in, in the 9, 10, 11 range of the Big Ten out of 14 teams. And you would think with Michigan consistently being in the top, you know, three, four of recruiting in the Big Ten, that they would have some guys that could check what Michigan State has offensive skill-wise, and it just didn't happen. And not to take it there, but I will take it there. If that's what Michigan looked like against Michigan State, skill-wise, I just can't wait for that matchup when the Wolverines play the Buckeyes because Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Jameson Williams, all these guys that Ohio State has on the edges that are really, really good players, great skill, they're going to have a field day, period, point blank, the end. Um, and so as we kind of go through this, I said it earlier, I think that Michigan absolutely got out coached by Michigan State. And so it brings up the question about Jim Harbaugh. And I'm not going to call for the man's job. Um, I, I think it's really inappropriate to do that. But I think it's appropriate to ask questions about the job that he's done. Um, he has, he, I think he's three and three now uh, against Michigan State, which is a game that's rivalry game. Michigan State had been down in some of those years as a game that they should win um, against top ranked opponents they are very poor I don't have their record offhand but it's not very good against Ohio State they are winless and you ask the question Jim Harbaugh did you come in there and do what you needed to do they have not uh, made a Big Ten championship game appearance they have not made the college football playoff they are not in the national championship talk year in and year out like Ohio State is like how Penn State now is in that conversation it just doesn't happen for Michigan um, and I would I would shoot back with these two things is number one. I think our expectation level for the Michigan Wolverines is far past what their capabilities are. Michigan's last big 10 championship happened in like, I think 2004 was the last time they won or shared a big 10 championship. Joe Milton would have been four years old at the time. Just want to put that in perspective. Michigan's starting quarterback would have been four years old at the time Michigan won their last Big Ten championship. It was a long time ago. I think that Jim Harbaugh has done most of the things he's been asked to do. I think that he came in at a time where the Big Ten East was going to be really hard to compete in and win. Ohio State was coming off a national championship when he got there. And the expectation level really at Ohio State at that point became Big Ten championship or bust. Um, he was coming in at a time where Michigan State made a college football playoff appearance. They were kind of in that era where they were competing with Ohio State. I remember at my time at Ohio State, we lost four games total. Two of them came to Michigan State. They were very competitive. They, Michigan hired Jim Harbaugh at a time where Penn State was now starting to come into their own. Um, you look at that. Uh, 2016 season specifically where Penn State, uh, you know, Big Ten championship and all these other kind of things. And they were in that playoff conversation. And now Penn State, it seems like is number two in the, in the Big Ten behind Ohio State, especially in that East. And they've been able to recruit. And now they're a team 
perennially top 10 we're having conversations about can they be spoiler for ohio state and can they make the college football playoff and we're not talking about michigan like that but michigan has all of that to deal with you have three teams in the east year in and year out that are true competitors and then you've got teams like indiana that are starting to make a come up you've got maryland who's recruiting at a high clip right now it's really really difficult to find success in the east and i think that our conversation needs to move from can Jim Harbaugh get them a Big Ten championship and can they be on a national championship type level to can Jim Harbaugh win 10 games a year? If you win 10 games a year, I feel like that's really successful at Michigan right now. And if that becomes your standard, then you can start to talk about leveling up to Big Ten championship, national championship. But I, I think that um, Jim Harbaugh, definitely the criticisms and the critiques are warranted. I think that uh, the fan base and, and, and college football expects more out of that program. But just for me, for my expectation level, I'm a little bit more level-headed to where I can say that maybe our expectations are out of line. And Jim Harbaugh definitely should be able to do more as coach there. But I don't necessarily know if he's done a bad job. And I don't know who you're going to bring in today that can do a better job than what he's done thus far. So I'll leave that conversation on that. Uh, if y'all have any criticisms, questions, comments, concerns, you can at me. I'd love to have a conversation about it. All right, OSU versus Penn State. That was the primetime game of the week. That was Ohio State's biggest challenge this year is can Penn State make this a competitive game? Can they, can they challenge Ohio State? Uh, they've got them at home and make this one uh, that Ohio State regrets. And uh, the answer was unequivocally no, and it wasn't very close. So Ohio State gets it started off early in the game. Jet sweep Garrett Wilson, 62, 63 yards, whatever it was, striking distance right away. And you feel like the game was going to get blown out of hand. Um, and it didn't necessarily get out of hand, but it never really felt like it was in reach for Penn State. And I think Ohio State was sloppy in a lot of ways defensively with penalties that extended drives um, that put Penn State in opportunities. I think Penn State really connected on some of the deeper passes, which opened up underneath in the passing game. Um, Ohio State did a really good job on, on the RPO game, I think, overall. But uh, there were some shots that Penn State had. Um, and offensively for Ohio State, you feel like they, they put themselves in situations where they had to go to the well. They had fourth downs they had to convert. Um, you know, they got behind the sticks on a couple of shots and, and really had to uh, work their way out of that. But I will say this, as good as Ohio State is and as, as good as they look, I don't think they have even scratched the surface of what they can be. 38 points or whatever they scored on Penn State, I think was kind to Penn State. I think if Ohio State was really clicking on all cylinders and Ryan Day was really going for the jugular in some of the, the – you know, like the missed field goal that they had. I felt like that was a fourth down that I would have taken if I were him. But if Ryan Day was doing stuff like that, that game could have easily gotten into the 50s in my mind. Um, it really could have. And this is a reason why I could get into the 50s is Justin Fields. And I've said that Trevor Lawrence right now is my QB1. Uh, Justin Fields has closed that gap. And I, I, I said, um, you know, weeks ago when Ohio State wasn't playing, I said it even week one that the gap wasn't close. I think it's, it's, it's closing in. Um, Justin Fields, the one thing he doesn't have that I think Trevor Lawrence has is a fastball. Like I'm talking about a rocket far hash over to the sideline type pass. So one thing missing out of his repertoire, but Justin Fields is very efficient. He doesn't turn the ball over. He makes really good decisions. He's calm in the pocket. He's looking more now to pass than he is to pull the ball down under pressure. He does everything he needs to do. Uh, fantastic. So you take that guy and then you give him all the weapons on the outside, namely Chris Olave, 
who is a surefire first round pick now. I think he has shown what he can do in terms of route running. I think he's shown toughness. He has shown ability to catch contested balls. He was covered on one of his touchdowns. He was covered. I don't know if he could have been covered any better, and he still made the catch, NFL type stuff. And then Garrett Wilson, who is a young player, first year playing in the slot, and I don't know who in the Big Ten can check him. I don't think there's one defensive back in the Big Ten Conference, and I don't even know if there's a guy on Ohio State's roster right now. And Sean Wade is a great player uh, who gave up a couple plays. But I don't even know if Sean Wade right now could check Garrett Wilson the way Garrett Wilson's playing. And I love the edge. You can see anytime he gets hit, he's on the, the opposing sideline. He's talking cash. He's making himself known as a threat, as a playmaker in this Big Ten Conference. And so you put that together, and already Ohio State is just – phenomenal offensively but then the offensive line and the run game were challenged from the nebraska game said hey you guys got to step up you got to play a lot better and they did master teague was decisive running the ball he wasn't necessarily as explosive as you might want him to be um he was he doesn't have the wiggle back yet from that achilles injury but i'll tell you what when he went downhill and made a decision that he was going to hit a gap full speed and he was going to run into a linebacker or a safety and get all the yards that were there he was very, very effective. The offensive line got great push up front to create those holes and those gaps for Master to run through. Um, and I thought they did a great job, a great job in pass protection. Justin Fields got hit toward the end of the game, got smoked. Uh, linebacker was on a blitz, just completely unblocked. It was, you know, I think a protection issue. They brought one more than Ohio State could handle and got smoked. But that was really the one time that I feel like Justin got hit. He had a clean pocket. He was thrown out of really, really nice pockets the whole game. So it's coming together. The offensive line, I think, took that step off the challenge that they had from week one. I thought the run game really ramped up from week one, what we asked them to do. Master Teague went over 100 yards at tailback. That's what we wanted to see. They got it done. Defensively, this team right now in the front seven is ridiculous. Interior D-line, Haskell Garrett, Tommy Togiai, Teron Vincent getting in the game did a really, really good job. Tommy Togiai had three sacks in the game. You know, Haskell Garrett was a guy who was just being disruptive. It was awesome. And then you look on the edges. Jonathan Cooper was a man. Zach Harrison did a really, really good job. Zach Harrison on an RPO said, all right, I'm not going to take the quarterback. I'm not going to take the running back. I'm going to take both. He tackled both guys. And that's how you really kill that system is you put indecision in the quarterback's read. We used to, we used to dictate when we knew that a team was going to be like a zone read option type team or an RPO type team. We used to dictate what they were going to do. We would tell our defensive ends to either uh, chase. So you would chase the running back and that meant the quarterback was going to have a pull read every time and the linebacker was going to be able to get over the top because here's what happens is if the tackle doesn't get flat and then get vertical so they can block that outside linebacker that middle linebacker depending on what the defensive set is the linebacker can get over the top they can close off the hip of the tackle and then they can tackle the quarterback so that would be our chase call and the defensive end would chase the running back regardless if he had the ball or not we would dictate what the quarterback was going to do or we would have a charge call where the the defensive end was going to charge at the quarterback make him hand the ball off and then as linebackers we were just going to play the inside runner the cutback whatever the case was um, but every once in a while we would throw in this thing called a mesh it's a mesh call where we would have our defensive ends tackle the mesh point which means that they were tackling the point where the ball was being handed off by the quarterback so the quarterback can't read whether 
the defensive end is trying to tackle the running back or trying to tackle him, and it creates indecision, and they executed that so perfectly. I thought they were spot on the RPO game all game long. Um, I thought the linebackers did a really, really good job. They were asked to do some very difficult things. RPO is tough on a linebacker because it's, it's meant to make the linebackers wrong because if you're too downhill too quickly, then they're going to throw the ball over your head and they're going to get a chunk of yards and make the safeties have to tackle. If you sit on your heels and you play for the pass, they're going to get three or four yards a run every single trip. And Ohio State was aggressive enough in their linebacker play, and they read their keys well enough that they were able to suffocate the run. Quarterback run was almost non-existent. They couldn't get anything with the tailback run, but they were also very effective in the short and intermediate game pass-wise to make sure that the RPO wasn't pulled off. Here's the other impressive thing that they did. They did it with Baron Browning. They did it with Pete Warner. They covered Pat Fryermuth, who's one of the best tight ends in all of America, man-to-man, one-on-one, no help. They did it a year ago in the shoe, and they decided that was going to be their plan of attack. And it's bold because that guy gets loose, and he can make plays. Pat Firemuth is a tight end that can flex out. He can catch the ball, and he can run. He, he can run when he has the ball. And Ohio State said our linebackers can handle him without any safety help, without any double teams, none of that. Not going to get out of our game plan. We're just going to play ball. And I thought it was really impressive. The one place Ohio State has to improve is in the back end defensively. I think that they are not playing as cohesively as they can. And it's to be expected. That group has a lot of young players. Um, and, and they have one player that went down. I believe it was uh, Cam Brown who got hurt in that game. Uh, but, I mean, they've got young players back there. And a, a large part of playing defensive back is uh, communication. Because a lot – I mean, those guys are out there playing off a of skill. You know, you're on an island. you got to cover a guy man-to-man. It's, it's your skill set versus his skill set. But communication definitely helps because if you can learn how to pass off routes or if you can learn um, how to communicate how wide receivers are going to attack your coverage or whatever the case is, it makes them a lot more effective. And I feel like it's going to take a little bit of time to develop that. Um, now, I do want to address this. Sean Wade got, um, he got done twice by Jahan Dotson, really good receiver for Penn State. Uh, Penn State, their guys are on scholarship too. They recruit really good players. Uh, thing I saw out of Sean Wade was the technique was not as tight as I would have liked to be. Don't think the first step was very good. I don't think he was good with his hands in terms of being physical. I thought that his hips got locked out a little bit. And then when he was trying to track the ball, I think he lost the ball in the air. Um, and so those are things that he can, he can definitely improve on. But you have to give credit to Jahan Dotson and his playmaking ability. He stabbed the ball out of the air with one hand on the touchdown that he scored. That was the second play in that sequence. The play before that, he concentrated so hard to catch that ball one-handed on the ground. That happens. It's ball. If you're a defensive back, you have to have a short-term memory because those type of plays are going to happen. But overall, uh, really, really good for Ohio State. And it kind of leads me into my next question. So we're looking at the Big Ten East right now. It's obviously Ohio State's top dog. Um, Indiana's 2-0. and uh, Michigan is 1-1. One and one. And Penn State is 0-2. Who do I think is the next best in the Big Ten East? It's a tough one. It really is. But your boy is going to go out on a limb here and say that Indiana is the second best in the Big Ten East right now. Um, And it's not to say that I think that they're that much further ahead than Penn State because I I do think Penn State is a really good team. They definitely have the edge talent-wise. But in terms of how they're playing and what I think of their team right now, it's Indiana. And they've got a test coming up. they got Michigan. Um, and we, we, we will really see what both of those teams are made of. Indiana has been known uh, to get hot and then lose games in, in just a, a very 
Indiana way where you let the game just get away from you at the end. Uh, Michigan is wounded right now. They lost a game they didn't expect to lose. And there's talk around their program about them being overhyped and everything. And I want to see what that response is like. But if I'm picking that game right now, then I, I wouldn't put a ton of confidence points on it. But my confidence would tell me to go with Indiana straight up in that game. I think that they will win. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to see what Penn State does the rest of this year. Like I said, 0-2 this a position they probably didn't expect to be in. Um, but I don't think that they're dead. I don't think they're a lost team. I just I think they got off to a really bad start. But I'll, I'll round this conversation about the Big Ten East was saying that I think the East is as competitive as it's ever been. Um, Ohio State obviously head and shoulders above everyone else. But when you get into that conversation of Indiana and Penn State, we saw uh, how close that game was. Indiana and Michigan, I think, is going to be a close game this week. Um, you talk about where Michigan is right now. Michigan State obviously got the win over them. You talk about Maryland and what they look like against Minnesota. That's a team that you feel like can compete a little bit because of the offense that exists there. And then Rutgers is not the same old Rutgers uh, from before. They're, they're a team that fights. They're a team that's invested in the game. They, so that crazy play they had against Indiana, for folks who don't know that, they had like eight, eight or nine pitches on this play um, to try to score a touchdown against Indiana late in the game. It was under two minutes. Um, they were going to try to kick an onside kick after that, get the ball back and, and, and really uh, sweep that game away. And um, there was an illegal forward pass. One of the pitches was an illegal forward pass. And so that play was obviously the call was reversed of a touchdown and everything. The player who threw the illegal forward pass was on the sideline crying because they're that invested in, in, in competing now. Like those guys aren't the same Rutgers that would just fizzle away in a game and, and look apathetic. They're guys who care. Um, and so the East is going to, I'm telling you, next couple of years is going to be really interesting. I don't think anybody's touching Ohio State right now. I don't think anybody's touching Ohio State for the next couple of years. But who, who the next in line program will be, I think, is really a toss up. And so we'll monitor that as it moves forward. Jump over to the Big Ten West real quick. We have a little conundrum over there. There's a legit question of who will win the Big Ten West. So Minnesota, who won 10 games last year, is 0 2. So they're out of the conversation right now. Uh, Iowa, who won. 10 games last year is 0-2. So they're out of that conversation right now. Who do we have? Purdue, 2-0. Northwestern, 2-0. And Wisconsin hasn't played in a couple of weeks. Uh, who's going to win the West out of that group? And I, I guess I, I don't want to disrespect Nebraska. You know, I guess Nebraska's still in it. Nebraska. But uh, I think the three teams I named are, are probably the front runners right now to win the West. So we'll look at Purdue. Um, they have – they were good offensively last year. They had really good receiver talent. Um, they were playing with a walk-on quarterback who was like fearless. Aiden, o Aiden O'Connell is his name. Uh, fearless guy. And now he's their starting quarterback. He does a really good job for them, can sling the ball around. Um, they've got, I mean, when I talk about talent on the edges, like they've got talent on the edges. And Jeff Brom calling plays, obviously, is something that you want. But um, they've got this cat. Um, dang on, I'm drawing a blank right now. David Bell is his name. Uh, really good receiver, uh, sophomore. He just does everything you'd want him to do. He's averaging over 120 yards a game receiving right now. Milton Wright is their kind of next in line guy. He's averaging about 92 a game right now. Um, and then they've got actually a run game this year. Xander Horvath, who's their running back. Um, he's averaging 115 yards a game. They averaged on the ground. 
total as a team last year, 83 yards a game. So they've really turned it around, and their defense is actually getting some stops. They couldn't spell defense last year. So that's Purdue. Northwestern, they got a transfer quarterback. My guy Peyton Ramsey done a pretty good job for him. I think he's steady as it goes. I don't know if he's going to necessarily be explosive, but he's going to be a guy who will definitely manage situations and make good uh, decisions. Their defense is legit. They held Maryland, which we saw against a, a bad Minnesota defense, I'll, I'll say. But uh, they held Maryland to three points. And I think it's hard to hold anybody to three points, regardless of how good or bad the team is. Um, you know, it's just, it's not something that you do. Held them to three. And then they gave up like 17 points early to Iowa because of turnovers and poor field position, all kinds of different stuff. The next three quarters, they only gave up three points to Iowa. Uh, who's, I mean, they got, they got some guys now. Amir Smith-Marset for Iowa, really good wide receiver. Um, Makai Sargent running back does a pretty good job. Spencer Petrus, their quarterback, I'm not necessarily sold on him, but, um, you know, he's a serviceable quarterback. And they held those cats to three points over the next three quarters after giving up 17 and were able to win that game. Uh, pretty impressive stuff out of them. And then Wisconsin, obviously, we saw in week one against Illinois. Uh, you know, I, what is that? 43 to, to seven or 49 to seven, whatever the game was. Um, they, I mean, Graham Mertz did just such a good job in that game. And, and they got Jake Ferguson, the tight end, really involved in the game plan. And their defense is, it's, I mean, it's pretty damn good. So who wins the West? And for me, I ain't going to call it right now because I think it's really close. And I want to see Wisconsin play again. But um, it's, it's cool to see Purdue as a competitor now over there. You felt like it was coming because Jeff Brom's a really good coach. They, they recruit really well. Um, Got to give a shout out to my guy, uh, Aaron Hodges, who is their director of player personnel over there. He was at Ohio State when I was at Ohio State. Um, he does a hell of a job just connecting with recruits and identifying talent and everything. Uh, so they've recruited really well. Northwestern, uh, after the season they had last year, I think they won – you know, one, two, three games, whatever it was, it was just, it was not a good year for them. And, and they've bounced back in a big way. And they're, they're doing a great job. So West is kind of open right now, but uh, super excited for that. Um, let's shift to a national look at a big game coming up. We got Clemson and Notre Dame. Uh, Clemson will be without Trevor Lawrence, the all-star quarterback, he is uh, out due to COVID concerns. He's tested negative apparently, but just wants to ensure that he's over some of the potential lingering issues along with COVID, which I can respect. Um, people think that could make a little bit of a difference in the game. DJ Uyanglule. Hopefully I didn't chew up that man's name too bad. If I did, I'm sorry. No disrespect to that young man. He's going to be the guy running it for Clemson. I, I thought that he was fine. Um, in their game against Boston College. You know, I think Clemson defensively was a little bit worse than I expected them to be, but I think he was fine. I think they're going to be fine this game against Notre Dame. I look at Notre Dame. They looked okay in their opener against Duke. Um, you know, defenses looked iffy. Against Florida State, they didn't look very good. Uh, Louisville was a clunker of a game. Like, they played well defensively, but their offense was just miserable. Um, and then, you know, I mean, they were all right against Georgia Tech. But I, I look at the quarterback, and I think that's the difference in the game. I, I, you know, like DJ Uyunglele is, is a guy who we don't really know. I, I have no reason to trust him, but I feel like within that offense and the physical, just the physical skills and the, the, just the ability that he has um, and, and some of the explosive tools. And I, I think wide receiver, um, you know, they, they took a step back from where they were a year ago at wide receiver, but they're still, still fine at running back. 
Um, I like that offense better than what Ian Book and his offense can provide. Um, they have no weapons at wide receiver at Notre Dame. Like, zero weapons at wide receiver for Notre Dame. Um, Ian Book is just over 60% completion, uh, which is the standard for quarterbacks. You want to be at at least uh, 60%. Anything below that is bad. Um, 60% puts you at like, you know, average serviceable. It's what you want to be. If you're at 65 or above, you're doing a great job. Um, you know, I think Trevor Lawrence is somewhere in the 70s and completion percentage. Justin Fields is somewhere in the 80s, which is just ridiculous. It's, it's really unheard of. 87% sheesh. Um, he's got seven touchdowns and one interception. Justin Fields through two games has six passing touchdowns. So again, like I said, they have no weapons at the wide receiver position. And I think it becomes really hard to win a game against a top team with a great defense when you're one-dimensional, when your wide receivers cannot break the game open and can't change the outcome, I think you're going to struggle. So I think Clemson without Trevor Lawrence will be just fine in this game. Um, I, I believe Notre Dame is a low-key fraud. We'll see this weekend. Uh, but I mean, that's the game of the week. I'm excited about it. It tells us a lot about the national picture. You know, if Notre Dame loses this game, Trevor Lawrence is in it and they look bad. I think um, regardless of what happens in the rest of college football, it makes it really hard for them to have a path into the playoff. If Notre Dame were to pull off the upset, then you can see a path where Notre Dame and Clemson can get into the college football playoff. And I would be very uh, curious about that situation, but We'll let this weekend play out and see what happens. All right, I want to change gears into something a lot more serious than the game of football. Uh, I think we need a little bit of a civics lesson. So um, I'm recording this on a Wednesday night. We had our Tuesday night shenanigans with the presidential election. Uh, went to sleep Tuesday, you wake up Wednesday, there was no result. They weren't able to call a lot of the states. This year was very unique with the COVID-19 pandemic. Voting was made more wide and more accessible due to uh, mail-in absentee voting and early voting in person as well. Um, that created a hell of a situation in what was already a contentious political environment that was going to be um, a highly contested situation for a lot of states and specifically these battleground states and would lend itself to the situation that we are currently facing. So I, I want to break this down just so folks can understand um, how this thing works. So elections have never been declared on election night. Elections have never been declared on election night. It's a TV thing. It's something that's been done for ratings. We get to sit up, flip back and forth between CNN, Fox News, ABC News, um, CBS News, MSNBC, whatever you like to watch. Um, you can flip back and forth and you can see the coverage and you can hear the pundits talking about the different races and what counties turned out and what demographics turned out and who won what and outperformed X, Y, and Z and who's underperforming and, and all the different scenarios to get to 270 or more. Um, typically, that situation is fine because um, a, lot of, a lot of presidential races aren't really that close. They haven't been highly contested. We, we had scenarios in 2000 that was pretty highly contested. 04 um, was one of those where you went to sleep and, and it was still a little bit in question, but Bush made a, um, 
he declared victory and, and was pretty emphatic about it. And so, you know, everything ended up working out. But it was, it, I mean, it was still highly contested. And then 16 was another one that was pretty contested. But by the end of the night, we pretty much knew it was going to happen. So outside of that, these races aren't really that close. They typically historically haven't been. So it's fine for TV networks to put on a production and to, um, to declare states for the different candidates. But we are in one of the most highly contested political environments ever, where we have to deal not only with the in-person vote counts, but we have to deal with the mail-in ballots. And what's really interesting about that scenario is one system of voting heavily leans toward one political candidate or one political party over the other system. So if, if you voted in person on election day, you are more likely to be somebody who would vote Republican or vote for Donald Trump than somebody who sent in an absentee ballot early through the mail, which heavily leaned toward Joe Biden and Democrats. All right, so let's start with that. All this craziness. So elections have never been declared on election night. Typically fine because they haven't historically been close, but now we're in a scenario where they are close and people are like, oh man, I went to sleep and I woke up and the election wasn't declared. Well, here's how it works. So. Um, the the boards of elections locally certify the election. So they count the votes, they tabulate which votes went to which candidates, and sometime after election night, there is a certification through the board of elections and the secretary of state gives a rubber stamp to that certification. That point could be, you know, like the day after, that point could be a week after, in some places, it's a little bit longer than that, 10 days, two weeks, whatever the case is. In this climate, it's definitely like that because we're not just counting in-person votes. We're, we're counting a, a heavier influx of mailed-in ballots. And it's, it takes time to count those and it takes time to certify. So again, we go back. It's never been declared on election night. A lot of people are confused what we're seeing right now are projections, their reports from, you know, the different boards to media outlets, but that's all they really are is what the media is reporting. It's nothing that's certified by any board of election. When you go to vote for the president, this is the other interesting thing. You're not actually voting for the president. You're, you're declaring a vote for uh, the electors in your state that are affiliated with the party of the candidate for president that you're voting for. And then in December, those electors will then cast their ballot for the president of the United States. That's why the electoral college, the race of 270, all that you're, you're really voting for the elector and the elector will vote on your behalf for the president, whichever uh, candidate wins the state, those electors will go and they will cast the ballot for whoever won that state. Um, so now we're at a point where elections have never been declared on election night. Um, you don't actually vote for the president and, and whoever the electors that do vote for the president don't cast their ballots until December. And also the board of elections doesn't certify the secretary of state does not certify your election until well after election night. Now we're in a situation where it makes a little bit more sense how we can be here. But, but this is what happened is for months now, we've been told about the dangers of mail-in ballots and about how it's illegitimate and it's not a good way to vote. And we have been fed this lie that somehow the Democrats are going to steal the election through mail-in voting 
um, as if Republicans don't vote through mail and as if bipartisan committees don't don't screen the votes and tabulate them. So you have, again, Democrats and Republicans both looking at these uh, mail-in votes and, and also as if Republicans would not try to commit mail-in voter fraud too, neither here nor there. So we've been fed that lie. Um, then we were we were put at a disadvantage as a nation in our consumption of this because of how the votes came in. The, the terrible thing about all of what's going on is each state individually gets to make up how their votes are tabulated um, because, you know, we're 50 independent states and we all have different needs. Uh, but this is how we get to a point where, for example, in Ohio, um, the early vote was counted uh, fairly early. So Biden jumped out to a pretty big lead. And then we saw a Trump comeback in the state of Ohio and he eventually won the state. Uh, Pennsylvania, which borders Ohio, was completely different. We saw all the Trump votes come in because they counted all of their day of uh, vote in person votes first. And then they were told to count the early voting. Um, this was something that was declared by the state. It was a Republican legislator that did it. Um, same thing in the state of Michigan, same thing in the state of Wisconsin. Really interesting how those three states uh, got into that confusion, all battlegrounds. But again, it's a part of this mess that we're dealing with. So you get into that scenario. And that's how we get to a point where Donald Trump declares victory last, or I guess not last night, I can't say that. It's Tuesday night because it's not coming out on Wednesday. It's Tuesday night he declared victory. Um, and then you wake up and you start to see that gap shrinking. Folks would say, well, how are they still counting votes? Or how did all those votes jump up overnight? And how did they find those ballots? Again, we were made in through our consumption to believe that there was this red wave that was turning. Like all these states that were blue at first all turned red because they, they put up their early numbers first and then their in-person numbers. And then we get Pennsylvania that was red by the end of the night. And he's like, okay, I'm going to call it here, knowing that they were going to have to count all of the early votes, which would favor Biden in the morning. Um, and I think it was a very concerted effort to create confusion and chaos. Um, because now you have people saying that the votes were illegitimate and that um, anything after election day should not be counted, which is never how it's been. That's never been the case. Um, you have people now saying that, um, you know, there are just boxes of ballots that were found overnight. And then there was a clerical error in Wisconsin, which really complicated this thing where it said that Joe Biden's numbers jumped up 150,000 overnight. And it was really 15,000 that it jumped up uh, and, and somebody just entered it wrong. And, that has been now uh, uh, confirmed that it was just an, an entry error and it happened on one site. But that's, again, that's what you get when you have media reporting on these numbers and in, in the election results and not certified board of election rubber stamp secretary of state reports of the voting outcomes. It's a really complicated situation, people, is what I'm trying to get at. But I, I guess folks need to understand that as competitive as the political environment is right now, there was no chance that there was going to be a result yesterday as um, as different as the pandemic voting environment is. There was no chance that there was going to be a result Tuesday night. And so we have to be very patient. We have to count all of the votes that were legally cast and received on or before Election Day 
They should be counted. They need to be counted because those are all legal votes and all those votes count. Um, and then we should make a declaration of who wins the election based off of those votes coming in. It's not something that has to happen election night. We're so used to seeing that. We're so used to seeing that. And it's got us all twisted. We need some patience and we need some understanding here. But um, I just, I, I think we all needed to hear that little civics lesson because, you know, I don't, I don't know if the, the environment's going to get back to where it was before, where somebody could win in a landslide on Tuesday night and we all go to sleep and wake up and the result's the same. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know if this pandemic also changes our, our, the way that we vote as a nation. I, I think it's great. The, the, the turnout that uh, happened. I mean, it's, it's the most people that have ever voted have voted. Um, Joe Biden, regardless of whether he wins the electoral college or not, has received the most votes out of any candidate ever in a, in a presidential election. Like the numbers are great because voting was really accessible this year. Uh, but I mean, there, there are some real challenges and I'm, I am just waiting for all this to play out, but I feel like I needed to, to give you that little lesson there. Um, so I'm going to finish you out now and get off of my damn soapbox and my hard horse. And I'm going to give you this the word of the week is mentorship. Mentorship is defined as the guidance provided by a mentor, especially an experienced person in a company or educational institution. So I'm big on mentorship personally. Um, I have mentors in all the spaces that I navigate in the media space, in the business real estate space. Um, I, I run a charity. So in that space, I have people that I rely on that have more experience than me in running charities. I have a mentor just in my personal life on relationships and how to be, you know, a better fiance and how to be a better brother and all those different types of things. Um, and it's really important because there, I feel like there are a couple of ways to learn. So you can learn by doing and by screwing it up yourself, or you can learn by going behind people who have done it and screwed it up and they can tell you the lesson and what to do and what not to do. And that's why mentorship is big because for example, in business, uh, mistakes can become costly. You know, like you make a mistake in business and it's not just, Oh man, I learned a lesson. It might be, I learned a $10,000 lesson or, you know, I, I learned a, a lesson that, that hurt a client of mine. Like you don't want to do that. Um, and so it's really important for mentorship, but I, I got hit today with, um, a call from somebody who, um, I have a ton of respect for just personally and professionally. Um, he is, uh, a high integrity, high energy, um, high give a crap type of guy. Um, he works in the legal field. He's an attorney. Um, he's one of the top in his profession, uh, here in the Midwest. You know, he's, he's just over 40 years old as a partner at his firm. Um, he's got other things going on too, which are really great. Like he's trying to help young student athletes and he's trying to help, um, you know, like I'm saying young high school student athletes, he's also trying to help uh, college athletes that are transitioning out of sports and everything else. Fantastic guy called me on the phone and asked me if I would be his mentor. And he said that he was doing a little personal development and read somewhere that if you're over 40 years old and you don't have somebody in your circle, don't have a mentor in your circle, that is under 30 years old, you're doing it wrong. And so he looked to me as somebody that he respects um, and somebody who he feels like can, can help him answer a lot of the questions he has uh, within his business and his different endeavors. And so I just wanted to put it out there, number one, that personal and professional development should never take a break. Uh, you could be like him, 40 years old, you need a mentor. You could be like my father who 
um, does a really good job of what he does in his 60s. And he still relies on people to help mentor him on different things. Um, but also as somebody myself, who I am a mentee uh, to people who mentor me, there is an opportunity to reach out and reach up to folks and say, hey, you help me with X, Y, and Z. Let me help you in return. You know, let me, let me show you how to navigate the social media thing. Let me show you how to, to get in the digital world. Let me show you how we communicate um, as, as, you know, 20-somethings, as millennials. Let me, let me help you in ways that I can help you because I'm an expert in my age group. I'm an expert in how to communicate with people my age. I'm an expert in, um, you know, how to prospect for clients in my age group, right? Those folks older than me might not be experts in that. And so I have some information. I have some knowledge that can really be of help. But um, I think mentorship is, is it's, I mean, it's key because it's, it's, it's human to human. It's person to person. It's experience to experience. Um, you know, as they say, you, you, you sit up at that table, kneecap to kneecap with somebody else and you just share with them and you impart knowledge um, and you walk away knowing and understanding more than you did when you sat down at the table. All right, folks, that will do it for this episode of the Joshua Perry show. I want to shout out my all-star producer, Andrew Zolden does a great job running the show. Uh, we are broadcasting on the Zedia Network. Like I said earlier in the show, follow at Zedia Network on Twitter. Because Make it real easy things. for me, man, with no, uh, no mistakes, no errors. So don't man. thank me. Thank yourself. Man, you know, I'm just trying to do it to it, but I got the best producer around. I am Joshua Perry, and this is the Joshua Perry Show. <laughs>